Hey, hey, Broken Laces audience. Happy to have you back as I welcome in Chase Huntley, the VP of the Energy and Climate Program at the Wilderness Society. I heard Chase talk about public lands, the BLM, which is the Bureau of Land Management, and climate change a few years back, and I've been pinging him, not nonstop, but a, a few times to have a chat, and I'm, I'm just so happy to have him on. As Interim Deputy Vice President of the Energy and Climate Program, Chase works with staff in the public policy and public lands departments to develop and evaluate policy options for sustainably managing energy production on the nation's public lands in the face of climate change. Chase comes to the Wilderness Society with significant policy analysis experience, including more than six years service at the Government Accountability Office, which is the investigative arm of U.S. Congress, evaluating the stewardship of public resources and the implementation of natural resource law and regulation. He represented that Government Accountability Office at the World Summit on Sustainable Development in 2002. On the podcast, we chat about his journey into public lands policy, the role of BLM land, and the pressing issues affecting federal lands in the United States, namely in the West. My feeling is if you enjoy our public lands, you got to know the issues facing them. So I look forward to sharing Chase's background on the topic. All right, let's roll into our chat. Chase. How are you, Riley? I'm doing well. Yourself? Not too bad. Thanks. Good to catch up with you. Yeah. Thanks for thanks for hopping on. We've back and forth on email for a little bit. And I, I first heard a, a talk from you a, a couple of years back. And I always just thought it'd be fascinating to have you uh, representing kind of the policy in, in environment space on the podcast. Thanks. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. As I mentioned in my intro, I, you work for the Wilderness Society, and in all the pantheon of environmental nonprofits out there, the ones that the listeners are familiar with, the WWF, Sierra Club, NRDC, Nature Conservancy, the Pew Charitable Trust, it's hard to kind of track all their strategic missions at once. So I think it'd just be great to open up and, and have you tell us a little bit about the Wilderness Society, its strategic mission, and, and you know how you, how you even got there, too. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Sometimes I think we need a fantasy uh, conservation league. That's so right. Everybody can pick their pick their favorite organization. Yes. Everybody's got a critically important role to play. Today. It's called Giving Tuesday, right? Yes, exactly right. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the Wilderness Society is one of the older conservation organizations in the United States. Uh, we were founded in 1935 with an emphasis on ensuring that uh, there's some wild places left for future generations. Uh, at the time, the founders recognized the rapid development associated with uh, with the New Deal and uh, a lot of the public service and public works projects that were beginning to slice and dice um, some of the forested parts of the United States, particularly in the in the southeast. And in the in the course of that, crisscrossing them with roads. And uh, after uh, some debate the original founders came together around the idea that uh, there were places in the United States that should be protected uh, and left for nature to manage. They were particularly concerned about the penetration of roads into the backcountry and all of the traffic and uh, visitation that came with it, ensure that some places were left in a natural state. 
after the organization was created, it worked in a variety of different places. Uh, a lot of people think of TWS just in terms of federal public lands, but at the time, um, some of the biggest early fights for the organization were actually uh, right here around Washington, D.C. 50s, for example, there was a big conversation about what to do with an old railroad corridor and uh, associated canal towpath and whether the CNO canal should be turned into a freeway or if it should be managed uh, for recreation mm. purposes. And the Wilderness Society, working with the Nature Conservancy and Supreme Court Justice uh, William O. Douglas, uh, took on a campaign to move lawmakers to create what eventually became a national park unit. Um, so the Wilderness Society started right at that crease between development and, and wild places. Um, but its its mission was really set on protecting wilderness uh, and inspiring Americans to care for wild places. So, you know, we we like to think of our sort of one of our bigger accomplishments as an organization and, and really as a as a collective movement because nothing in conservation is the result of any one organization's work. Um, but in 1964, when the the Wilderness Act was passed and signed into law, um, it created a, a whole new designation tool that allowed citizens to engage with federal agencies and with members of Congress to identify wild places under the federal law on federal public lands and to work with Congress to uh, permanently protect them. Obviously, that that act turned 50 a few years ago and um, a really impressive track record that the community put together with more than 110 million acres of this country set aside as, as designated wow. wilderness. But as an organization, and I think as a movement, we've begun to look at that tool and look at the needs of today, um, a rapidly changing America, big population movement away from bigger cities, out toward uh, natural areas, increasingly moving west, uh, of course, changing demographics of the nation, and, and then that pesky problem of climate change uh, that seems to lay bare the inadequacies of, of any system. And you know, it's, it's clear to us that wilderness is, is still a critically important tool, but we as a nation have to be thinking about protecting bigger landscapes at scale, uh, ensuring freedom to move for species, uh, both big game, but, but also plants and animals that are, that are migrating uh, upslope and, and northward uh, as the climate changes. Um, so as an organization now, I mean, we're spending as much time looking at uh, protecting and conserving wilderness and, and wild places um, as we are trying to make sure our federal public lands are managed as part of a national climate solution. What levers are you pulling as an organization? Is it, I don't know if you can put a percentage on it, but as a certain percentage of, uh, you know, policy research, advocacy, is there lobbying in there, educational outreach, for instance, kind of how, how would you frame up the levers and in, in how you, you know, partner with other organizations and our legislators to do this type of work? Yeah, our work's rooted in building meaningful mm. relationships. Um, that means working with conservation partners, but it also means working with communities on the ground. And you know, that's really my organization's humble beginnings is working with communities of people living next to places uh, with a deep love and appreciation for those places and coming up with the right protection strategies to ensure the values that people enjoy today are available for their kids and their kids' kids. Uh, so they can go hunt elk um, in right. the Sawtooth Mountain, in Idaho, so that they can go still find pronghorn uh, migrating hundreds of miles in southwest Wyoming. Um, and that those habitats in those places aren't cut up by energy development and roads. Certainly in doing that, uh, those partnerships have to be melded with 
um, and and grounded in solid science for a long time. Uh, I think organizations um, worked place by place, um, but lacking a coherent conservation strategy that that kind of linked those protected places together. And the conservation movement in the last twenty years or so has, has really begun to recognize the the importance of connectivity and, and big linkages uh, at, a, at a continental scale um, to make sense of the, the conservation gains that we're making in individual places and, you know, in, in within regions. Um, so for, for the Wilderness Society, science uh, and, and analysis is, is an equally important component of the work we do. But at some point, we've got to bring that understanding. We've got to bring the people power to bear on decision makers. Um, and because we as an organization are you know, very focused on working with the federal government and federal land management agencies um, to help shape the way that uh, the decisions they make on the 600 million acres of public lands that uh, are managed on behalf of taxpayers today and tomorrow. That's a long lever. Um, and, you know, we need to use advocacy tools, including lobbying, including campaigns, uh, including engagement in federal planning processes when public comment is called for. Um, we seek those opportunities out. We try to create them where we can uh, to shift the way that federal government is, is making decisions about its lands. Uh, but ultimately, the Congress is the one that sets the laws and determines how right. our public lands are to be managed. Um, and it's you know it's a it's a bit of a junkyard of uh, of laws out there that you can find dating back to the um, the Hard Rock the Hard Rock Mining Act, um, the Mineral Leasing Act, which will turn 100 next year. I mean, th these are still controlling pieces of legislation that shape the way our public lands are managed. So it's it's an important time for us to think about these levers and, and to consider how we want to reimagine our society's connection with public lands. Um, and Congress is, uh, is another important uh, partner, uh, another important venue for us to work with in doing that work. But before I end up disappearing into the stratosphere, talking only about federal policy, you know, so much of the work we're doing these days is increasingly um, focused on connecting people to nature. Um, and that's had us working in, in new ways in the last five years through programs like our Urban to Wild program that has helped build conservation leaders in East LA and connected some of the most park poor communities in one of the densest urban areas uh, in the United States to spectacular public lands in the form of the San Gabriel Mountains, just uh, 40 some miles away, but utterly unreachable without transit options. It's, it's a range of problems that we're working on, um, but there's nothing we do that doesn't rely on building trust and meaningful relationships um, with partners and, and with the communities in which we work. That's great. And what, what I heard is there's, there's multiple strategies uh, to ultimately achieve your mission. It's, it's getting more people to parks or, or to wilderness um, because that's only going to improve public opinion for, for supporting. It's, it's you know, working with Congress on a policy perspective to, to update some of the older legislation uh, that is still in play today. And, and the one thing you mentioned about, or I should say the one thing that I'm still uncertain of or confused of is, is, is it a goal to increase kind of like the number of acreage under federal jurisdiction? Is that, is that something that we work on? I know you mentioned a stat earlier about number of acres. So I'm just, I'm not sure that we're actively trying to do that. Is it, is it more about maintaining what we existingly have? So the, the federal estates really vast and varied and 
you know, the largest land manager in that estate, the Bureau of Land right. Management is one. Um, your Western listeners are probably familiar with a lot of the Eastern listeners. Uh, a lot of a lot of my colleagues had never heard of the Bureau of Land Management until they came to work at the Wilderness Society. I grew up in Kansas. I, I didn't hear about right. the BLM until I was in college. Um, and folks would be forgiven for that because they, they don't manage the the crown jewels of our national park system. Um, they don't uh, have the the PR muscle of Smokey the Bear and the and the Forest Service. Um, you know, for a long time has been managing the high peaks and the um, alpine subalpine forests um, that are often so picturesque. BLM's kind of uh, inherited some of the forgotten lands, the working lands, the mm-hmm. range lands. Um, and across those various agencies, though, you know, the, the lands that are managed have all come into federal, the federal domain as states join the union. Um, and as those states join the union, they signed what were called accession clauses that uh, gave to the federal government uh, ownership rights for lands within the boundaries of those states. Uh, and those lands that the federal government did not dispose of in uh, the subsequent 80, 90, 100 years um, are the lands that are remaining in our federal land management system. Uh, now, I, I can't say that without recognizing that those lands uh, often came into federal ownership and came into the state's ownership through a series of uh, treaties with uh, indigenous people right. in, this, in this nation. And you know, we've got some, some questions to work through in, uh, with regard to the, the, the inequities of both current and, and historical that um, are also wrapped up into our public land system. But you know, today, I'm not aware of anyone out there that's seeking to expand the yeah. federal land system. I think the bigger threat is is trying to guard against uh, contraction of yeah. the federal land system um, through an organized effort that uh, has taken a few forms uh, in a couple of different states, but is really rooted in this notion that these lands shouldn't be managed by the federal government. They'd be better off in private hands uh, and should be sold off to corporations and individuals that have the means to, to buy these lands or hand it over states. to states for yep. state management. Yep. And, you know, that's it. It might sound reasonable uh, to some listeners who haven't seen how uh, what happens to those lands. But the where we've seen those those land transfers occur, uh, whether it's states or to private entities, in almost every instance, those lands are immediately cut off from the public. And in many cases, they're quickly turned over to development. Uh, there just isn't the accountability in place. And in many cases, uh, you know, states don't have the, the resources to manage those lands and conserve the resources found on them in the same way that the that the federal government can right now. So, you know, one of our, our biggest pushes working with partners has been to ensure that our public lands are not taken over, um, whether it's through transfer, through sell-off, or ultimately by being sold out to the highest bidder, uh, energy developers and mining companies that, um, will effectively get run of the place uh, just by gap grabbing some of the cheapest leases um, known to man uh, to access oil, gas, coal, or hard rock minerals. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up because I the, the reason for the expansion conversation is because I know that that contraction conversation exists out there. Um, I know the Nature Conservancy works on some of this stuff, I think through estate sales in terms of adding you know, public land to, to protected land, if you will. And so I, uh, that was the answer I expected, but I was, I was curious. Yeah. And so what you're hitting on, I think is a really important distinction in the community. Um, speaking of that, uh, conservation, conservationist fantasy football, right. League, 
some of the most important players right now are uh, land trusts, um, like the Nature Conservancy, like Trust for Public Lands, right. like uh, the local land trusts that surely are are you know dotting dotting the country. Mm-hmm. And you know, in that case, there are a number of organizations out there that are seeking to increase the amount of land conserved, uh, whether that is public land, whether those lands are accessible to the public is is a different question. True. Um, but at a, at a time when scientists are uniting around the globe, pushing for the world leaders to commit to protecting half of the earth by 2050, and um, you see a lot of countries right now setting targets to get 30% of their land and waters protected by 2030, the land trusts uh, and you know, the land conservancies are hugely important players. Um, the federal, the federal land, the federal estate cannot, uh, it just isn't big enough. It isn't broad enough to, to make that kind of conservation impact. It's a critically important foundation for conservation strategies that those local land trusts do an incredibly important job um, identifying and, and in many cases picking off some of those hardest to access parcels that are often some of the most ecologically uh, right. important. And and you were speaking of the half Earth goal uh, by E. O. Wilson. It's fifty percent by twenty fifty. Yep, that's right. And and yeah, and that and that rally cries. You know, it's really based on the notion that we as a society have to be taking action. We have to be making technological progress to address climate change. But in the, in the in the course of cleaning up our mess and transitioning our energy system, we can't let the natural systems that make this world livable. Um, expire right. in that in that pursuit so we've we've got to be paying attention to some of the more traditional uh, less glamorous work but essential work um in the environmental space which is continuing to protect land and water and to, to restore areas that have been degraded yeah no no my last question for you to just wrap up on on the wilderness society is i would love to hear some of um Kind of the major campaigns that you've been a part of, or, or maybe you weren't a part of, and your your colleagues were leading the charge that you've seen in your time there. You've been there for for twelve years. Um, oh, yeah, you gotta remind me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what's what's been just something you're just super proud of? You'd love to share. You know, it's working at the Wilderness Society is in and of itself a, a joy. Um, I had to apply um, a number of times before I, they finally hired me. Ah. Um, I became a member when I was 13, uh, and I had a transformative backpacking experience when I was, uh, when I was younger in my early teens and, um, had thought it it must be the coolest job in the world to be able to work for an an organization that works to protect this, this amazing experience that, uh, folks who've been in the backcountry and have really experienced wild places know, Uh, and I'll be honest with you, it, it is the coolest job in the world. But in my time at the Wilderness Society, you know, there's been highs and lows, uh, but the campaigns that I've been most proud to be associated with uh, early in the Obama administration around 2008, 2009, it was clear to a number of organizations, including the Wilderness Society, um, that we had to figure out a way to uh, responsibly site wind and solar facilities uh, and the transmission we need to take that power uh, from remote public Mm. lands to to where people live and work as part of a, a clean energy transition. But the problem with those, uh, those energy, uh, one of the challenges in, in doing that um, is to, was to learn from the 100 years of conflict and controversy that came with oil and gas and coal development. Um, we had to find a better way, a way that uh, was smarter from the start, that thought about 
places that were simply inappropriate for development, um, and then screened for places that that might be appropriate. Um, that uh, you know, no developments impact free, and that certainly isn't the case for for wind and solar facilities with footprints the size of small industrial campuses. But um, but there are there are places that are more able to accommodate that kind of impact and practices that can be used that, that lessen that footprint. And working with a, a number of conservation leaders, working with a number of uh, elected leaders in Congress and, and a couple of governors, as well as um, career agency staff and some politicals in the Obama administration, I'm really proud to be part of a, you know, a nationwide effort to build a, a renewable energy program for our public lands that uh, that took the number of solar permits granted on public lands from zero okay. to about 24 um, that more than tripled the amount of wind production on public lands. And, and we've, you know, there, there were some projects that we had questions about some that we challenged, but ultimately um, most of the projects that were permitted in the Obama administration, we, we felt pretty comfortable that they were, they were uh, cited in, in those lower conflict places. So that, uh, that effort, which spanned a whole lot of people really proud of the, you know, uh, the way that we can kind of look at past experiences as, as, uh, as a federal agency, but also as a nation, think about better ways to do things. Um, but another one that, uh, we're, we're in the midst of right now, I'm, I'm proud to be associated with is uh, what seems like the ongoing effort, uh, mm-hmm. to protect the Arctic national wildlife refuge. Right. And if you're of a certain age, you're such as me, You'll remember when the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge was one of the seminal environmental issues. Um, this would be in the yep. in the early 2000s, say 2002 to 2005. And um, you know, for some of your listeners, it'll be hard to imagine, but that place and that fight had the kind of national uh, recognition and visibility. It had the kind of same cultural importance that that climate right. change advocacy has today. Um, it was the the threshold issue. Um, and after fighting so hard uh, for the community to have successfully protected that area, to see Secretary Sally Jewell in the last few years under President Obama recommend that area for wilderness protection, and then to see this administration come in and with no meaningful public process, shred that recommendation, press Congress to demand that they hold a lease sale and just rush headlong into um, what we expect to be an effort to to lease some parts of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge's coastal plain next spring, uh, as early as next spring. Um, I, you know, I, I'm proud to be associated with an effort to to, to stop that. Um, I mean, if you can't say no to developing in a in a place that right. has no economic rationale for developing oil and gas, that that is the essential birthing and calving grounds for uh, one of the largest um, mm-hmm. caribou migrations, ungulate migrations in the world. Um, and that particular population of caribou still provides uh, more than 80% of the, the calorie intake for the indigenous Gwich'in people um, mm. that straddle the U.S. and the Canadian border. You know, you don't even have to think about the climate impacts. You looked at that fact pattern, and I don't know who thinks that it's a good idea to be developing up there. So yeah, and we're dating this podcast, and and who knows if it'll make the podcast as a result. But the Goldman Sachs uh, item today, I don't, I didn't get a chance to read too much into it, but they they bowed out financing drilling in in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. So, 
Yeah, it's huge news. They're the first major U.S. bank to join with, I think it's nine other international banks, including the Royal Bank of Scotland, uh, Australian National Bank, um, a couple of different lenders in, in Italy and, and Australia and New Zealand. Um, but it's it's the first big U.S. financial right. house that's uh, looked at that fact pattern and said no. Um, and, you know, at, at a time when many of your listeners may be active in, in conservation advocacy, may be getting a little frustrated, screaming at the administration, um, screaming at agencies like the BLM and not seeing any changes in, in the course of the policy, it's really meaningful uh, to look at, you know, one of the, the largest lenders in the world. Um, look at look at this idea and say no thanks, um, and not just no thanks. We're going to write a policy that lets anyone know. Don't even come to us for financing this kind of project. So um, I think that there's a lot more work to do there. We certainly hope that that's the first of many, um, and we both thank, appreciate, and congratulate our partners uh, in in the Gwich'in Nation for the advocacy that they've really led to raise um, both the environmental story, but really mm -hmm. the human rights story um, that uh, I think has is, is got to have been a big piece of the, the logic that Goldman took into that decision. So, you know, congratulations to the Gwich'in and, and to those fighting to protect the Arctic Refuge uh, and a, a thank you to Goldman Sachs for making a smart and right decision. I, I, I want to take a step in the direction of the BLM, because you've mentioned it a few times. I, I heard you give a conversation, uh, not a conversation, I heard you give a lecture or a presentation, I should say, on the BLM. And I find it, as you've already mentioned, a fascinating piece of our kind of federal land ownership. Um, a lot of people don't know what it is. People don't know where to find the closest BLM. Um, and people don't know generally kind of what it's used for. And from my understanding, there's energy and development, there's ranching, um, there's obviously enjoyment uh, for those who want to go four-wheeling or if they want to go hiking, there's potential artifacts out there from an archaeological perspective. So I'd love for you to just give us the brochure, like 101 view of the BLM, how many acres we dealing with here. It's, it's largely concentrated in the West, as you mentioned. But what is kind of the story of the BLM? You know, so so your readers should know that the federal government is one of the land, largest land managers and energy owners, uh, energy managers in the world, um, with two and a half billion acres of subsurface mineral rights onshore and offshore, and more than six hundred million acres of lands, uh, surface lands that are managed, and um, and of that, the single largest. Uh, managers is the Bureau of Land Management, uh, which and is they're under, by a, they're under the Department of Interior, or is that is, are they under a different department? Nope they're they're a division okay. of the Interior Department, okay. um, along with the Park Service and the Fish and Wildlife Service. Sure. But yeah, the the BLM is a division of the U.S. Department of the Interior. It oversees uh, more than two hundred forty five million acres of public lands, covering most states. It's more land than any other government agency. The BLM's responsibilities include managing a really rich set of, of conservation areas and wilderness areas and national monuments under the National Landscape Conservation System. Um, but it also manages more than 700 million acres of underground energy minerals like oil, gas, and coal. So it's, it's a multiple use agency. And you know, a lot of people hear public lands and they assume that those lands are protected because right. the government manage them. But, you know, that just couldn't be further from the truth. 
in addition to you know managing a, a huge scope of resources, the BLM's uh, mission and, and mandate over the years has been heavily weighted toward uh, energy and resource extraction. You know, outside of places that are statutorily protected, where the the agency gets to make a decision, more than ninety percent of the lands that it owns uh, and manages are are open to oil, gas, and coal development. Uh, the agency uh, very rarely closes areas to developments, and and as such, that it has a long history of conflicts um, when it comes to the way it manages uh, energy and, and mineral resources. Of the resources it manages, uh, they're Productive. More than forty percent of the nation's coal comes from BLM-managed lands, um, mostly in the Powder River Basin of, of Wyoming and Montana. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now, more than twenty-five percent of our of our oil comes to the federal government. Of that, a little less than half comes from onshore development uh, that the BLM manages, including a, a significant chunk of the fastest-growing and, and most productive oil field in the world right now, the Permian Basin, straddling. Uh, the border of Texas and New Mexico. Oh, okay. Um, and there's a huge amount of national natural gas as well that comes from onshore development. Although gas markets are pretty tight right now, so production has you know, slowed production down. Is, yeah. uh, slowed down a bit, and it's coming uh, from different, some different places. But you know, all in all, um, the the agency has a wide ranging mission, and multiple uses is just a, it's a really tricky concept in practice particularly when uh, it's as vulnerable to the political swings that we've seen in, in the last yeah. you know, 15 years, seesawing from one administration that was drill baby drill to another administration that protected more lands than any other administration in history to this administration, which has overseen the single largest reversal of protections uh, of any administration right. in history. And the BLM's right there, right in the middle. It's a it's a big agency with about ten thousand career staff. Every civil servant I've met is genuine, committed to the agency's mission, uh, knowledgeable, and you know. But the the BLM is not it's not a marquee agency that many people have heard of before. And if, if you've heard of it recently, it's it's probably because right now it's undergoing a, a pretty major relocation. Most of the uh, most of the managerial positions here in Washington D.C. are are being forced uh, to relocate to Western communities scattered across uh, seven different states. And uh, we'll see how many of those career staff actually make the move. But it's it's a really interesting time in, in, in the agency's history. And I think there's a legitimate fear that a, a number of former directors and former uh, agency staff have raised that uh, there's a deliberate brain drain that's underway. Um, some of the most talented young managers are being relocated to places that um, they may not feel comfortable or, or interested in moving a family. And so it, yeah. it's going to be an interesting time to see where the agency goes, but it's got a long history. So, so a couple quick lightning round questions, and I don't know if you're going to have the answer, but in terms of what percentage of BLM land is, is used strictly for mineral rights? Cause a lot of them just get, a lot of them just, just sat on, correct? Yeah. So energy development on, on public lands is just a, like a, a lot of things, um, it's it's a rigged system. It's a system that the energy industry itself has helped design uh, to the benefit of uh, of leaseholders and companies that want to develop. It's a system that allows companies to lease at uh, as little as two dollars an acre competitively 
But if no one wants to bid on that, you can come back next week or a month later and pick it up for a buck fifty an acre. Um, so less than the price of a bad cup of coffee, uh, you can get yourself an, an acre of, of oil or, or gas um, uh, development rights on public lands. And yeah, and the, um, yeah, and the, the, the so, reason I ask is it, it just yeah. seems like that's that's the only allowed use. I'm trying to get to like what is the allowed use because I know you mentioned trying to cite this this land for solar or wind, which would seem in concert with the existing you know laws. Um, but it it doesn't seem like that's happening a lot. And then and then to add to that, when you think of how the public can get involved and to show up to these auctions or these leases and, and you just like you are not allowed as as a public person to be there, it just it seems really restricted basically to to fossil fuel development. Yeah, I mean, there's no question that oil gas uh, is the preferred tenant on our public lands. And you know, the, the last few years has certainly made it cheaper and easier for developers. But um, let, let's be clear, the system was already heavily tilted sure. in their favor um, well before uh, the Trump administration rolled into town. Uh, they just found a way to roll the clock back to to create a system that's even more permissible right, than it was right. under uh, Ronald Reagan in the 80s. Um, so, yeah, the you know, I when I look at the best way to describe that it's it's not so much the total amount of acres uh, it's not so much the proportion of lands that are open to this or open to that it's it's any time that the the agencies come to a decision point who gets to be involved how do they weight the decision that they're making and then ultimately what decision gets made and time and again when the agency has the chance to make a choice uh, about who they listen to uh, who they consult with uh, and the decision that they make, um, it's almost always in favor of development, particularly energy development. You know, I don't think you have to look any further than the tail of the tape of this administration, having put more than 98 million acres of uh, public lands out there on the table for development, uh, public lands and waters, um, with more to come, uh, in many cases, over the objection of Democratic and Republican governors. The process is getting more and more difficult for the public to participate in. Uh, even governors and county commissioners and mayors uh, are are ceasing to have opportunities to raise concerns with the BLM. Um, even when outrageous areas are being put forward for development, uh, places near city parks, uh, places that BLM has bad data for and are actually in the middle of a, a stream, you know, even those no brainers, uh, the, the process is just not favoring uh, the public to participate in. So, you know, when you look at who's consulted, who's invited in the decision that gets made uh, over and over uh, energy development is the top dog uh, on our public lands. Yeah. And that's, I kind of want to end it on that. Cause it's, it's, it's a tough story to discuss and it's one that, that may leave you kind of not motivated. And I don't know, as an individual, I, I, I receive the newsletters that suggest that I should, you know, comment during public comment period. Comment prophecies. Yeah. Yep. And you do that and you like learn that 98% of the comments were in, you know, were in one direction and, and that was the direction that I submitted and, and it just doesn't seem to matter. They still go through it and it seems just largely driven by the administration. I don't know if it, if we need to go visit our BLM lands more, I know our national parks end up getting kind of saturated from a visitation perspective, at least the crown jewels. Like 
from from a public perspective is it just continuing to to put the comments forward and trying to make our local communities understand kind of the value i think the most important thing your listeners can do uh is to get out there and get to know the public lands right uh, particularly the lands managed by the blm and once you get to know those places and you get to know the the amazing uh opportunities both recreation uh opportunities but you know, also night sky mm-hmm, opportunities, mm-hmm. opportunities to see birds. You know, the BLM oversees what, ten about ten percent of the Pacific Crest Trail. It oversees um, of the thirty congressionally designated national scenic and historic trails. It protects about six thousand miles of trails in fifteen states. You know, the BLM is an active manager of our recreation infrastructure, and we just got to get out there and uh, get to know those places. Right. But once you get to know them. Um, you're going to be reminded of how important it is to engage to protect them. And uh, I know it's a drag uh, to put comments in and to see an administration ignore them. But I tell you, those comments, when they go in, they build a public record. And it's that public record that's allowing organizations like ours and others uh, to bring lawsuits and to win in court because it's clear that there is a strong preference uh, for a decision that wasn't the decision that gets made. Right. That's um, a good call. But, but to a point you made earlier, it, it isn't just uh, the courts that are paying attention. Companies are paying attention too. And I have to think that the amount of public outcry, um, not just public comments, but concern that's raised in the media, that's raised um, at uh, letters you know, to the editors, yeah, town halls, yeah. letters to the editor. Yeah. Just putting, putting out the call that these places, uh, should be conserved, not sold off, uh, and not sold out for energy development. Those, those letters that, that public sentiment that gets read, that gets understood by companies like Goldman Sachs, like others. Um, and they factor it in the decisions that they make. You know, my hope is that the, at the end of this administration, one of the more frustrating, administrations to work with on conservation, we'll see some bad decisions. We, we think some of those are going to get beaten court. Some of them are going to get reversed by the next administration. And I think in, in some cases, companies are just going to walk away. Yeah, get out there, enjoy these places. Um, but when you come back, when you have time, check out those emails when you get them in your inbox. Spend a couple yeah. minutes to take action. Um, take take 20 minutes to write a letter to the editor. And, and you know if you see a fight brewing over a proposed lease or um, you want to speak out against the proposed drilling in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, take a couple minutes to write a letter to the editor. That stuff really, really matters. And we can't say enough uh, how much we appreciate everybody um, taking time to, to get outdoors and to, to stand up for it. Yeah, and I agree. I, I, I think when you find a place that you love that's local and close to you and you build a, a relationship with it, really, and then you just got to, you're not alone, you know, there's other organizations out there, local, communal, regional, state, or even in, in your case, you know, federal or, or national, I should say, that are in the fight and they can help you kind of find your voice. So that's, that would be my recommendation. I know that's, that's been helpful for me to find other communities um, who are supporting the things that I'm, that I'm supporting and then finding a way to, you know, get on their newsletter at the, at the least so that when an important fight comes, I'm able to, to have my voice heard. So it's a, it's a good call out, go find the places you love, find the, the organizations that are supporting those places and, and make sure your voice is heard. Uh, with that being said, I want to end with our, our weekly or recurring segment, I should call it trails and ales. And I'd love for you to share kind of a favorite hike 
you're in DC, but it doesn't have to be in the DC area. Yeah. Your kind of favorite hike you'd recommend for somebody, uh, to go on and maybe the brewery that you would visit after the hike. Yeah, gladly. Uh, so I try to get out uh, at least twice a year to do, uh, um, it's a, a 10 mile or so lariat, um, that is mostly in GW national forest goes into Shenandoah national park, uh, called white Oak Canyon. Okay. So it's, uh, about an hour and a half drive from DC. Um, but try to go out with some colleagues, clear, clear our minds a little bit, get away from the crowds out by old rag and, um, hike white Oak Canyon, especially spectacular in the fall. And then on our way back, we tend to stop through, um, uh, Busthead Brewery okay, or uh, Devil's Backbone Brewery, um, both uh, pretty near to the trailhead. So it's, uh, it makes for a good long day. Um, it's amazing how much business gets done on those hikes. And White Oak Canyon, it looks like I'm, I'm Googling as you speak, 2,400 elevation gain. So so pretty good, nine and a half miles. What are, you're seeing just a lot, I mean, is that a part of the Appalachian Ridge officially? It uh, you can follow it up, and you can connect with the yeah. AT. Yeah, it's just on on the west side of uh, and so the you're skyline. Just uh, if you want, soaked in vegetation the, the whole time. But I'm assuming you are, depending on yeah. the time of year when you go. I always like going fall when you get a chance to see as much sky as you do leaves. But uh, yeah, there's a couple of nice waterfalls there. You know, like you said, it's a it's a good eastern hike, so pretty quick steep yeah. up, uh, but rewarded with some. You know, some great vegetation, uh, some great waterfalls, wildlife, um, and then gravity helps you on the way back down. Yeah, it does. Nice. I'll share some of the links I'm finding here on White, White, Oak, White Oak Canyon Trail. Uh, any any favorite brew? Um, I know you mentioned the breweries you attend, but is there is there one that they're known for? Uh, so Devil's Backbone, for me, it's um, still got to be their... Uh, their lager they've got a vienna lager that's just uh nice it's great admittedly i served it at my wedding so i'm uh, a little there partial to it uh, but yeah, um it's got some meat. yeah uh but uh old Busthead also has a, a great english pale ale but they uh you know the beauty of breweries these days is uh i feel like every time i go there they've got yeah. an entirely new set of taps up yep. so I think that's the trend is we serve beer that you don't remember because we switch it every couple of weeks. Um, <laughs> yeah, get, getting bored of making the same exactly. stuff. Um, perfect. Well, I will put the details up on that hike, those breweries. Um, I know just because I love maps, I'll probably, you know, take a look at it on a Google Maps and understand the drive and where you stop and where the trailhead is. So looking forward to doing a little bit more research on that. I want to thank you for coming on and sharing all your wisdom with the Wilderness Society and all the work that you do, as well as a little bit of a background on all of our federally managed lands. So I appreciate it. Yeah, no, thank you. And uh, I you know, really enjoyed listening to the podcast and uh, hearing it grow. So uh, thank you for the chance to, to be on and uh, talk, talk BLM. Cool. Well, thanks, Chase. Thank you, Riley. <laughs>